Breaking the cycle to step forward. Authentic conversations from lived experience and a professional perspective in overcoming abuse with Chris Tuck and Beverly Ann. Hi everyone and welcome to Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward podcast with myself Chris Tuck and Beverly Ann. Hello everybody. And our beautiful, lovely guest today is the Dr. Ellie Hansen. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. It is such a privilege and delight to be here um, with two people who I admire and respect so much. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Ellie. Such a great conversation today. We've got so much to talk about. And I know you said that I might embarrass you, but just looking at your bio, Ellie, it just blows me away with your knowledge, your expertise, and we can't wait to get into some of this today and share it with our listeners. So with that aside, let's start at the top. You are a clinical psychologist and researcher focusing in on sexual abuse and reducing its impact. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into that and maybe the reason why? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think it's interesting as a clinical psychologist, you are trained to focus on mental health. You know, how can we help to reduce mental health problems and using therapy and other tools to to do that? And, you, you know, as I trained in it and worked in clinical psychology, you know, what I was finding was that behind a lot of mental health difficulties is trauma, um, you know, and, and I was coming, working with many people who um, had suffered sexual abuse and other forms of abuse in their childhood. Um, and so, you know, just, I guess, the kind of empathy and compassion um, to to do something about that, whether that's through therapy, helping people kind of journey on from it, but also you know, I really then developed a passion to kind of moving a bit more upstream of the problem as well um, and thinking and being part of that collective effort that we're all engaged in, um, in trying to prevent it. So the people that you were seeing, the individuals you were seeing throughout your work, um, were they presenting with a certain set of symptoms or mental health uh, challenges? And it did it always go back to trauma from childhood or was there trauma from childhood abuse for example and also mental health conditions yeah it's a really good question so for a long time I worked in a drugs and alcohol service um, and the way in which that service was set up and how it ran um, and I should say that this was before austerity really kicked in and, and then it was mm. you know, re um, rejigged um, but we as psychologists you know we had the luxury should I say of of working with people where um where we could do longer term work than sometimes is available on the NHS um with those people who did have um something kind of underlying their drugs and alcohol issue which yeah was usually trauma um mm. some kind of trauma in childhood or it may be domestic abuse in adulthood um and so we were able to kind of work with people longer term with group and individual therapy to try and help that so yeah to to answer your question i've i have very much seen the impact of abuse manifesting in lots of ways rather than like you say one specific mental health difficulty um it may be like i say drugs and alcohol problem self harm um ptsd um but also it can manifest in ways that might not be as visible sometimes such as um, people being very numb um, and detached yeah. from life and actually not feeling very much at all. And yeah, that's as we know, yeah, as we know, that's a big survival skill. And I'm going to say skill because by detaching from our emotions and our feelings, that's how people get through trauma, isn't it? And it's what comes out later on further down the line. And for some people, it could you know it could be years and as we know 10 20 30 40 or even longer so that's our um body keeping us well sorry chris i interrupted you there so i'm going to no, pass back to you that's fine <laughs> but what i was just going to share with you um bev knows this but i worked at the priory psychiatric hospital for oh well over 10 years 
first as a business manager doing the accounts um, and being senior management level and to help run the hospital on a day-to-day basis, not from a clinical perspective, I'm not claiming that, but I got to understand um, when I spoke to the patients just in my normal everyday uh, life was um, that they were there for a set of symptoms, but that particular hospital at that time really wasn't interested in knowing or working with the calls. And I found that very frustrating. Mm. And it was one of the reasons why I actually left in the end. Um, Two years before I did leave, after my health impacts came up, I retrained as a fitness instructor. And then I uh, helped implement a fitness therapy within the hospital. And I work with what we call the gen psych population. I also work with the eating disorders girls, um, obviously in a in a in a way that was appropriate. And I got to hear their lived experiences, and it was the stories that were coming up time and time again. Childhood trauma. That's all I kept hearing. And then I got to thinking, well, how come they're in hospital with the impact? but I'm not and I'm working. And that really got me thinking as to why, why are people impacted in a different way? And, and what can I do that maybe help others that are not living their life like I was living? Pat on the back, Chris, at the time, I was thinking, you know, I was doing all right until I got my impact come up and hit me in the face, so to speak. Um, so that's when I left and wrote the book and started my journey of um, looking back and working out what was going on for me. So it was really important to actually acknowledge that everybody deals with it so differently and we've all got uh, a different journey and there should be no judgment. Back then I did judge because I didn't know any better but as I've gone on through my life, I don't judge anymore because we are all so different. And, you know, just because you're okay one day or one year doesn't mean to say it's not going to catch up with you at another time. I, I could not agree more. And I think there's just that we want to have that openness, don't we, that everybody's different and that often, um, you know, somebody may appear fine after trauma and, and maybe they are, you know, um, but also with that, openness and curiosity that sometimes there is this delayed impact and thinking back to what you were saying Beverly that um often somebody will be in survival zone for a long time um and actually it hasn't felt safe for their body and mind to start that journey of processing what happened um so there's there have there are those kind of dissociative barriers maybe still in place until you're then in a safer um, time in your life or place in your life to be able to um, go back to the trauma and I feel like our, you know our bodies and minds are very good at knowing when that time is oh and that feeling of safe is so underestimated because safe is different for everybody and it's safe you know in your environment at that time so that environment doesn't necessarily have to be at home it can be outside of the home and and this is what sometimes people misunderstand I feel that sometimes anyway absolutely and it's you know that the survivor themselves their body and mind is going to be the best judge of, of when it is safe actually and this is this conversation is making me think back to when I worked at the drugs and alcohol service we myself and a colleague ran a group for survivors of sexual abuse and we were trying to work out how to evaluate whether the group had helped or not um it was causing some complexity though because you've got all of these kind of standard questionnaires you know which is measuring maybe somebody's um maybe depression or anxiety but we, we were thinking about you know the different emotions that somebody may have following abuse you know maybe a lot of anger or a lot of sadness um or not very much of those things and you know really the point that we were getting to was that for one person, a positive an- outcome is that they feel more anger about what happened, yeah. whereas mm-hmm. for others, it will be that they feel less anger. So it's, it, again, it's just that really listening to where somebody's at and supporting them on their particular journey. One thing I was going to pick up on, Ellie, is that when I spoke to any individual that was 
at the hospital for um, addiction, they were not able to carry on with their therapy if obviously they relapsed. They had to be clean in order to do the program or, you know, cleaning themselves up, if that's the phrase, detoxing. Um, and if they relapse, they weren't allowed to continue because and, and they weren't allowed to speak about um, their root cause problem because they were there to deal with the symptoms. And again, that never played right in my mind. I was just thinking, well, until they deal with the cause in some way, shape or form, their default coping mechanism is going to be the same thing. So over the 10, 12 years I was there, I was seeing repeat people come back. They were just on a cycle. They'd go away. They would live their life. Oh, yeah, I'm clean. Um, but they'd be back within six months or a year because they've relapsed, because they've not dealt with the root cause. And I just couldn't get it. Completely. I, I could not agree. I've seen this time and time again myself. And, you know, partly we've got here the medical model at play, the medical model of mental health, which isn't actually... It, it, you know, it's just focusing in, like you say, on the symptoms and not asking about the why of those symptoms and looking at the root cause. Um, and what that does is it really works to invalidate people apart from anything else, which actually is what they've experienced as a child in one way, shape or form. And you're then compounding the impact. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's a kind of double whammy, isn't it? That you've suffered this trauma, but you're then suffering a mental health problem, which is kind of badged as just because of you not because of that something that's happened to you yeah and like you say there Chris we then just are kind of prescribing people to kind of go around this hamster wheel of symptom control without ever yeah. going upstream of that um so no so 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 for me and, and like I said how we worked in that service um yes you may well need to do quite a bit of stabilization work with somebody yeah um, but we really need to have two hands, you know, that you do that stabilization, help them kind of ground and manage those symptoms. But also there is space to 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 process what has happened and to make sense of it in a way that is going to be more adaptive and helpful. So, you know, and, and, you know, what you find is that if people are then able to process the trauma, they're, they're not wanting to use drink and drugs in the same way. Yeah, they're, they're learning that wonderful word that I call self care. Exactly, and it's and it's learning it, which is the hardest part. Yes. So. Ev, did you want to add anything else to that little bit of conversation there? Because I know that you have been involved or involved in that area yourself. Yeah, and and that's, we could go and talk about this for a long time. <laughs> I was trying to hold back, but thank you, because I'm very much believer that. Unless we enable people to understand what's happening with, with, you know, with their body, how it's responding, but also learn about the wellness tools, not just in crisis, but to help learn. So as it's building up, it's like, oh, OK, I understand what's going on here. What can I do? What have I got available? And that's what I, where I believe it really helps people to then become safe in them, their own bodies and their own self. And when they're feeling these emotions coming up, okay, I understand what it is. It might not feel nice, but I understand how I'm still safe. I'm here today. I'm not back in that unsafe place. So. Ellie, we could go on for like, and, and Chris, we could go on loads, loads more about that. Um, but, but it'd be really great to hear now you've moved further on, haven't you now, in what you're doing? Well, yes, you know, I, I'm kind of involved in a medley of things. Um, but one strand that the, the three of us have, have spoken about and touched on is my work um, with education, uh, yeah. specifically, uh, this rather mouthful um, PSHE education, which let's just stop there and unpack what that is, shall we? <laughs> um, none so of us. What does it stand about. for? Um, so it's it's personal, social, health, and economic education. Um, and really, I mean, maybe we could just summarise it as life education. It's that okay. part of 
curriculum that is, um, you know, supporting young people with the kind of knowledge and skills to navigate the modern world, really. Well, not just the modern world, also, you know, the age old world of, of relationships and health and um, and work. Mm. Um, so and we've got within, a lot. Yeah. Sorry, we've got a lot to unpack here, haven't we? Because we've had multiple conversations around all of this and we're going to talk over each other. I can see it happening. <laughs> no disrespect to anybody. But before we touch upon all of those different areas, I just want to pick up on the work that you've actually done because that will feed into what we're going to speak about. So you wrote a report um, called Pornography and Human Futures, and it says it's an analysis of online pornography, uh, the nature and business model and harms that follow. You've also been involved with CEOP, uh, producing a preventative education resource, building healthy relationships and creating positive cultures. You've been involved in many academic papers and chapters on online sexual abuse and its impact. So there's a lot of work that you've done, Ellie, that's involved children and young people and the power really of um, healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships. So what Bev and I really wanted to touch upon is what is actually being taught in our schools at the moment? If you could address that, I don't know if you know, um, I'm sure you do. Um, and this contentious um, narrative outside of the educational system where some adults are saying I don't want my children having that education I think there is a miscommunication here about what is being taught and why and the importance of it absolutely yeah no and, and let's get into the thick of this because it's such an important topic and like you say Chris there are some misconceptions out there, um, as, as well as some some valid concerns, you know, and, and I, you know, there, there's a bit of a culture war going on at the moment around uh, relationships and sex education, which is is part of that wider PSHE that we've just mentioned, um, you know, and, and I I can see the concerns, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to just dismiss them as, oh, you know, people just don't understand um we need to yeah we need to like you say start with what actually is being taught um and then kind of journey from there and you know I, I would say to anybody who's got a real interest in this it is actually worth downloading or having a look online I've just got it here which is the statutory guidance from the government um for relationships education uh, relationships and sex education um so, so that is the curriculum um and that's a 2019 document uh, which is in the process of being reviewed. I think it's great that it's already being reviewed because you know the world is constantly changing and this really was a kind of first stab because it only became mandatory then. So this was, you know, in a way, let's start here and then we see what's working and what needs to evolve. Um, and because there have been questions raised, it is being reviewed, you know, relatively early actually. Um, I my personal view is that this is this curriculum is a really good start, um, and for anybody that's concerned about relationships and sex education, I would imagine that much of it would be quite reassuring to read. That there isn't a lot of things that, to my mind, would feel very controversial. There's a real emphasis on teaching children some really core values around trust and um, kindness and honesty and care um, and consent. Um, so, you know, for me, and a real foundation in children understanding um, friendships and family before then building on that with that um, understanding of, of sexual and intimate relationships. And that's something that I've got to say is very heartwarming to hear because we've had conversations on previous podcasts about sex education and what we would like to see within that and for me I'm not sure about you Chris I won't speak on your behalf but for me that's reassuring to hear that that that's included in that report what are your thoughts Chris yeah, as Bev said before, when we've discussed this, from our perspective, being um, survivors of sexual abuse, 
if we had had the education around healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships, body autonomy, all of that kind of thing, we feel that we would have been better protected because maybe we would have had the vocabulary, um, the knowledge to speak up about what was happening to us. So we just see it, Bev and I, we see it as a, an important tool to protect children, not for children to take it, uh, you know, they're not responsible for speaking up. We know that. We know it's the adult's responsibility to protect children. But I think there are a lot of children that are being sexually abused that don't actually know that that is what's happening to them. And because they don't know or they can't voice it or whatever, they aren't able to speak up even if they wanted to. Um, so we just feel that's part of child protection. However, before, I mean, Lawrence Fox, bless him, he's in the news all over the place at the moment this week. Um, but when we've done a podcast before, he was saying that his son came home and said he'd learned that from school, dad needed consent before dad kissed him. So I know you've got something to say about that. Um, and Bev and I was like, oh, actually, it's not a bad thing, a child learning about consent. But at the same time, um, we don't want to take away that innocence and that normal, loving, caring nature side of being human. Um, but it's great that the child is learning about consent. But Lawrence was angry and want, he wants to shut down PHSCE, whatever the acronym is. <laughs> he wants to close it down because of that and other things. But I'm just thinking, whoa, we need to just stop here and actually understand why it's needed. Also, our concerns, because obviously sexual abuse affects at least one in four children and young people at a minimum. No one knows the true prevalence. Um, but it's just like, there's almost like the educational system over here, but it's to get the parents to come on board. We need that extra step to educate the parents as well. So everybody's on the same page and understands why it's all needed. Completely. Oh, Chris, there's so much in what you've said there that I'm just kind of applauding and, and resonating with. And, and just I want to just pick up on a few things, if that's OK. So, you know, the point that, that you've both made about actually if you had had this education, the difference that it might have made. And I feel that very acutely um, myself. It's It's one of the reasons why you know, having worked with the issue of sexual abuse, I, I did want to move into education. And interestingly, I was involved in a um, piece of research where we were interviewing young people who'd experienced abuse. Much of that abuse had been online. Um, much of that abuse had involved other young people. And what, you know, we were talking to them about, like, what would have helped? And what are your views on, on the way forward for society? And what really struck me was that the thing that they most recommended, so the most common thing that they said they wanted was this good quality relationships and sex education, completely yeah. resonating with what you're both saying. Um, and like you say, it's not that we're placing responsibility on children with this, but it is. it feels to me morally wrong to withhold from them um, an understanding of vocabulary and some skills with which children might be able to reach out for help, you know, and, and it feels morally wrong to deprive them of that and that they may be experiencing abuse. And then there's just a vacuum around them where, where we can't talk about sex. And that vacuum, like we know, is being filled with things like porn, which just compound the messages from the abuse rather than provide a rich sexual ethics and vocabulary which could help them. Um, and interestingly, those young people were also saying, you know, it would have helped me recognise what was going on and and ask for help. But also those young people who'd been abused by other young people were saying, and it would have helped them. It may have it may have actually taught those young people kind of harming them what sexual abuse is and may have helped them avoid perpetrating it in the first place. Yeah, it's bringing an awareness and an education from all different factors because one of the things we often hear, and I understand it's fear, uh, one of the 
quotations that I can hear in my mind is, but we don't want to sexualize our young children. Well, sadly, the fact is that there's a lot of young people being abused. Now, that's not a statement to witch hunt. What we're saying is, if we teach about relationships, that I think is fundamental in learning from a young age how to respond to each other within a community. And as we get older, it becomes more natural rather than withholding it. And it's not just about abuse, but the caveat for saying, but it's keeping our children safer and raising awareness, surely, surely has got to be the best outcome, I personally think. Yeah, Bev, like following on from that, you know, the argument is that some parents or caregivers will say, I want to protect the innocence of my child. So do we all. We want all children exactly. to be protected. Yeah. We do. And, you know, I think sometimes a misconception here is that to teach um, about the principles for healthy and ethical sexual connections versus those that are abusive or unhealthy, the misconception is that that involves a lot of teaching of explicit sex, but but it doesn't at all. No. Um, you know, actually this is about teaching principles. So I have a few principles in my head that are my kind of wish list for relationships and sex education. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll launch into a few of them. So, so one would be mutual enthusiasm, that both people involved in that sexual experience are enthusiastic about it um and that there's a reciprocity one person's desire is actually playing into the other person's desire in in a in a spiral rather than someone doing something to somebody else um another principle would be attunement so that both people are listening to their own thoughts and feelings and to the thoughts and feelings of the other person and that is then playing into what happens um, there's also the principle of thinking about best interests, my own best interests, but also the other person's best interests and um, and communication, checking in with each other before, during and after, um, honesty and equality. You know, so, so those are some of the core principles that I would want children to have a very good grasp of. Now, we've you know, we're, we're just talking about it now this doesn't involve us going into the explicit details of what. Of different sexual acts you know it, no. it, that, that's not really relevant so I, I do think there's a misunderstanding there and I'd very much welcome a conversation with Lawrence Fox about all of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy for him to come on the podcast that would be very interesting well, well, why not why not <laughs> a good conversation comes from all different areas uh, it does doesn't it but I'm not sure <laughs> we should touch him at the moment um, what I was going to say, though, is that when you look across social media and in other countries, there are reports um, from people that report on this that we are teaching children as young as four how to masturbate. And I was like, really? Are we really teaching now children that? Is it really on the curriculum? So I just wanted to check in with you. What have you heard? What do you know about that? Is it true or is it just? Yeah, so I am not aware of any concrete examples of four-year-olds being taught how to masturbate. Um, mm -hmm. I should start with that. I, I think, you know, what they're tapping into is, yeah, is a concern that there are some materials out there um, that, that are sexualizing children or, yeah. or introducing sexual knowledge at a developmentally inappropriate time. Yeah. Um, I kind of I hear that concern. I think there are some problematic materials out there. Um, so I yeah, like I said, I don't completely dismiss it. Um, what I would be in favour, I think the curriculum itself is not suggesting anything of the sort. You know, mm -hmm. that's not to stop people devising materials like that and some schools to be implementing them. Um, I think there is a journey to really kind of evaluate what schools are doing and to offer teachers uh, more training. So I do a lot of work with the PSHE Association, 
which is a membership body for, for teachers and schools and really has that aim of kind of training and teaching kind of good principles for this education. So yeah. that, I mean, that, that's one particular body that would support a kind of sensible approach to this. Um, I'm not saying it's the only one, but, um, you know, I, I think that there is a journey there with teachers being trained in this to a more thorough and deeper level. Um, you know, it's relatively early that this has become a mandatory subject. Um, yeah. It's not taught in, you know, if you're a history teacher, you're taught to teach history, but yes. no one in their teaching degree is taught to teach PSHE. And I think that's a real gap because it's potentially the most one of the most complex subjects. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's the direction of travel now. Um, and I think, you know, you know, asking schools to do a bit of an evaluation to make sure that all of their teaching materials is in line with the curriculum. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're hearing these concerns and, and that they're checking things. And, you know, the sex education needs to be age appropriate. We've always said that. So as children become young people and young people hit, uh, you know, puberty, then there will be, obviously, as nature's intended, there will be some self, what's the word? Exploration. Exploration going on. Um, but And there's nothing wrong with that. As a survivor, I have my own personal issues all around that, and we've spoken about that before. But in a normal, natural environment and growing up, then self-exploration will happen. Should schools be responsible for teaching that age appropriately? I don't know. I just don't know. It's a bit. Un I'm a bit uncomfortable with all of that, but that's a personal thing. Um, but if they don't learn it from a valid source, as in all areas are talked about age appropriately, then they will turn to porn online. So can you talk a little bit more about your work with all of that and why you feel or wh why we know that it is an issue with our young people now because they think that porn is relationships and it just isn't especially if it is not conducive to being healthy and appropriate yes I mean I think it's a massive issue that is that is really kind of affecting a, a climate change across our society in terms of relationships and and sex um but you know people are uncomfortable kind of going there a lot of the time so you know one of the things that I feel is that porn is both everywhere and nowhere you know, it's having so many people are watching it um, and it's distorting things. But when there aren't as many of these kind of conversations as there should be about, you know, what, what is going on here with this huge cultural change. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when we look at pornography, again, people might have a kind of misconception that, oh, we're just talking about sex and nudity. Well, no, we're not. We're the porn industry is pushing um, certain sexual scripts. Um, scripts that fundamentally make it money. So if we think about, um, you know, the human mind, we we have a potential, there's such rich potential. We, our sexuality has a multitude of potentials. You know, we, we can, people can be turned on by a variety of things, um, you know, but which doors in, the, in our mind do we want to go through? And some of yes. those doors of our sexuality are healthier to go through than, than others. Um, and fundamentally, um, sexual scripts, a sexuality that is based around um, trust and, and and it being personal, you know, that actually that sexuality is because of this attraction with this other person and there's a chemistry there. Now that might be in a long-term committed relationship, it might be in something very short-term or, or a one-night stand, but fundamentally there is that connection between two people. And I would say that's really key to healthy sexuality. Now, porn can't make money from that connection between two people. It can't get into that space. And if it does, then something's fundamentally changed, isn't it? Once you kind of monetize that space. So it, it kind of sidelines relational chemistry-based sexuality. It, it dismisses it. I mean, I've even got many examples of it actually sneering at that kind of sexuality and, and denigrating it mm -hmm. and in its place it pushes these impersonal sexual scripts so you know sex is about 
just following your arousal wherever it leads that sexual freedom and you know sex is about dominance and transgression um or or you know manipulation and persuasion um and and it's you know very laden with gender norms that women like violence and want to please men and men should be in control and you know be dominant so it's pushing these messages about sex which yes whilst people may get turned on by them that doesn't actually encompass their their sexuality and and pulls them away from this richer ethical relational based sexuality that's one of the challenges that i find as well because we're talking about um education within school for younger people but one of the conversations we've had is the education they have when they're watching tv you know even before the watershed we see adverts for different programs that are happening um and i we see videos. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't enjoy watching some of the dance videos, but when you look at them over the years, um, and it's not just now, they've been happening for a long time, some of the acts that are portrayed within those videos are pornography. When you look at the, the pornographic message, messaging that's coming through, as you've just said, our children of all different ages have access to that. And that's where the messaging is being time and a time again processed to them. And, and yet when we want to change that, people have a fear. So on one side, we have people saying, don't teach children um, sex to our children, you're taking away their innocence. And yet in another um, factor, such as our te television, we are portraying these sexual messages all the time. I think you've just completely summed it up there. And, you know, between between those two positions, children fall with nothing to help them navigate this increasingly complex world where you have big corporations seeking to shape them and their sexuality towards profit. You know, yeah. and, and actually that's a real scandal. Um, and, you know, I think what, what we here are advocating is a third way, a third way where children are protected from, from that kind of content. Um, as well as given a framework of healthy sexuality, um, like you know, you were saying earlier, a vocabulary um, and an understanding of the kind of sexual experience that we can say is good and healthy, um, which will help them then also spot those forms of sexuality, those sexual scripts that that may pull away from that. I think it's also really important just to address the word pornography as the word. Um, because Bev and I have spoken about this before, Ellie, and to us, pornography um, means consensual sex, acts of sex with two consenting adults. So some people that do work in the sex industry, they may not be consenting. So I just want to add that in there. But usually porn is thought about as adult footage between consenting adults so when they come along and say child porn it literally grates on us because that in itself often makes it seem like it's consensual where there is it should porn and child should not be in the same phrase it, it just shouldn't Yes. And I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for me, if I, I have to say my own personal experience of the phrase child pornography is actually a, a real, for, for me, it, it works to say that's abhorrent, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's, I'm, I, yeah. I totally hear you about it's not, it's not an appropriate phrase, but there's a kind of grappling around language with this, isn't there? Yes, We've there now is. got the phrase child sexual abuse material which yeah. replaces child pornography and that's then shortened to another acronym yeah. which is CSAM now yeah. my slight issue with that is that it kind of puts the horror of this behind an acronym yeah, yes it softens it doesn't it it, it yeah. does and in a way should we be saying images of child rape um, yes you know actually let's bring the focus back to the you know fact we're just talking about something that is 
really abhorrent here yeah and ensuring that people do feel the emotion of this rather yes. than acronyms that can kind of sanitize the whole thing yes yeah. so that phrase child pornography for some it's abhorrent but for others because they just hear the word pornography they oh so child pornography is acceptable is it that's what's how some people's minds work so it's just like no it's not acceptable but I get where you're coming from. I never thought about it before, about CSAM and it all being softened down. Mm. Mm. It's a tricky one, isn't it? And maybe, yeah. you know, I'm not saying we get rid of the term CSAM, but we might just need to do a bit of unpacking of it when we talk about yeah. it so that we yeah. we always keep the heart of what we're doing, aren't we? And, and you know, and and, and the horror, the, the horror of what yeah. of what children are, are going through. Um, and that we want to protect them from. And this often, I feel, gets missed because there's one side that says, and I understand this, I'm not denigrating anybody, but we're looking at it from all aspects. There's one side that says we don't want to sexualise our young children. But then, as Chris said earlier, one in four that we know of, young people, and we know that it's as young as, well, I don't mind sharing. I was just about four when my my abuse started, and I'm not the only one. I'm one of masses. You know, sexual abuse starts from a very young age, including babies and toddlers. So if we don't find a way to open this language, what the silence does, and that's what it is, silence it, it becomes a norm. And when it becomes a norm, and that it's not talked about, that means it will continue. Going back to language as well. So I was intrigued why some people call it sexual violence. Why do some people call it sexual abuse? Why do some people call it rape and sexual assault? And what does sexual assault mean? So we've got this language that it, it, you know, we all think we know what it means, but it means different things to different people. So I've, especially globally, when you look at globally, they call it like sexual violence, but not all abuse is violent. There is a lot of um, missed place can you see me get my back going up here <laughs> misplace um, um sexual misconduct going on sexual abuse going on but it's not always violent and this is where lots of it not lots many victim and survivors have uh issues or challenges dealing with their impact because he loved me yes. i love him especially if it's like family dad or granddad but yeah, I, I I understand that what he did to me wasn't right, but he loves me and I love him. So th there's a lot of stuff. There it's is. so complicated. It is complex. And I, I think maybe what we're saying is that we kind of need all of these words and we need to use them in an, in an expansive way so that nobody feels excluded by the language. Because like you say, you know, um, many people are not going to relate to that word violence. So if they only hear the phrase sexual violence, then there's the risk. Yeah thinking well then I, I I'm not a survivor of this and I, I've recently been doing um a real focus of my work recently has been around sibling sexual abuse and yeah. what we find is many survivors of that they, they feel like they don't belong in in the world of survivors you know what well, actually I, it, it maybe it was consensual or you know that that I it doesn't fit maybe the stereotype of adult yeah. child or, or maybe it started off as something that was an experimental sexual play and then it it changed as time went on mm -hmm. and so that makes it harder for them to recognize that no it was still abuse and you know it you can validate the impact that it ha it has had and go on a journey from that from on from that absolutely. Back to what you just said, Ellie, we've touched upon this before as well. There are incidences where young children particularly will just be playing and exploring. How do we as a society or professionals, how do we separate an incident of play 
innocent play and exploration to something that may develop more into some kind of sibling sexual abuse how what are the parameters around this it's a brilliant question and it is a question that has plagued the kind of researchers in this field I have to say and you I've just read umpteen papers that say oh we don't have a definition of sibling sexual abuse because where do we draw the line I, I actually think that you know we can draw the line um and and we we know we do need to be doing more research on what is kind of normative um age appropriate sexual play and we know that that does occur in in children across the age range and and we do not want to stigmatize or shame that at all um but i think for it for us to be then noticing that it's actually something that's problematic or in a, or abusive there are certain things that we can be looking out for so for example is it kind of compulsive you know is the child engaging in it even when somebody said even when somebody's kind of diverted them or, or, or given them a boundary there now again that might not mean that they're abusing anybody but it might suggest that there's um an issue there for that child that needs a little they need some more support around um if if we're then looking at abuse we we need to be thinking about, you know, is there any kind of power differential between those two yeah. children? Um, is there any kind of coercion? And also how mutual is this? Is this one-sided or not? Um, and so I think if you kind of go through a bit of a checklist of these different indices, you can quite effectively differentiate something that's at one end abusive, then moving down a peg, problematic or inappropriate but not necessarily abusive and then the line between that and actually something that's quite normative that we really don't want to clamp down on because that then just shames something that that's perfectly okay and it's that's where we, area, isn't yeah, it? and, not talked about Bev. and that's where i think coming right back to the beginning when we are talking about relationships about consent understanding you know i think that that in, you know in that area really shapes it really defines it because the other thing that I think is important for you know particularly our listeners to hear about that something can start start being consenting but that doesn't mean to say it's set in stone exactly. and it can change you know it could be actually no thank you but no you know my, my consent has changed for whatever reason exactly and maybe sometimes a child is experiencing something like you say that may have been between you know two children it it felt mutual at one point and then actually they don't want it but they don't know how to say that or express it and so they can even feel that they are consenting um and so then that really plays into the kind of self-blame and confusion about what happened um which is why i am keen that when we teach about um, sexual abuse and healthy and healthy sexual relationships yes we do include consent but that isn't the be all and end all um, yeah many people experience things that they feel they've consented to but actually there was a lack of mutuality um, and, and those principles that I was talking about earlier you know equality attention to each other's best interests all of those things some of those ingredients were missing so we're talking about children here, young people that understand what we're talking about. We're not talking about youngsters and all of that because they're going to have no grasp on any of this. They're not going to be able to think about any of this logically. So it needs to be, as we said, all the way through age appropriate. Can, I agree. Just, and, I think, and I think a kind of spiral curriculum and, you know, you know the three of us have in the past talked about the pants rule for example from the yeah. NSPCC which is a really nice starting point you know teaching young children just some really clear things that they can expect in you know from the people around them in terms of respect and boundaries and I think that's a beautiful place to begin which can then be built on as children grow older and they can take in more information about this. And I'm glad you said that Ellie sorry I jumped in there um, because for me, when we talk about certain areas, one of the things I personally have found challenging, and it does come from my own experience, um, is the fact that sometimes we, 
the abuse can happen outside of certain areas because there's things that, you know, as a child, young person, you're being asked to do. So that's where, as you said, expand on it as you go along, which is, is good to hear. I'm also going to be the bearer of bad news. We've got another 10 minutes so we need to be aware of that because for anyone listening, you know that I'm the one who's watching the time <laughs> and we could really carry on because, Ellie, you've done quite a bit of work with the NSPCC yourself, haven't you? I have. Um, so, yeah, that, that actually is the, the, the sibling sexual abuse work that I've been doing recently is to inform um, their, their work on this issue. Um, but yes, in the past, I've done various other things with them, including working with um, young people with harmful sexual behaviour as part of their, in one of their teams. I want to pick up on some of the points that you, you guys have just said. Now, going back to potentially sibling sexual abuse or same age abuse incidents, let's call it that, um, some professionals, if they see that or hear about it, they will go, oh, it's just tomfoolery, it's just playing around, where in fact the impact can be catastrophic on one of those people within that incident. Or on the other hand, it's like, oh, my goodness, this has happened. We've got to separate them. We've got to do this. So it it seems to be extremes. There doesn't seem to be from where I'm sitting an actual sort of pragmatic and common sense point of view being taken from the professionals that I hear and see what's going on. Have you got anything to say about any of that, Ellie? Well, I completely agree with you. And your perception is very much very much backed up by a lot of the kind of research on this, that there, there can be those two professional responses. And, you know, that that's why we've been kind of doing this work, really, that there is an increased focus on helping professionals, like you say, kind of take that third way where it's not minimizing it, but it's also not catastrophizing it. Um, it is that assessment base. Let's actually stop and think what has gone on, really listening to both children or, or however many children are involved um, and, you know, not, not forcing a certain narrative on these children or family until we kind of know more and they can develop their own, you know, their own language and understanding of what's happened. Um, so in these kind of situations, what I would really be advocating for is that both children do have some therapeutic support, which may yes. be quite different in focus. You know, if, if, if this is behavior from one child to another, then the child who has harmed will need some work around that. Um, versus work that's more trauma focused for the other child um, but I would also be advocating that support for parents yes. um, and possibly also for other siblings as well because you know if if sexual abuse happens within a family then everybody's affected and often the other children and their needs are kind of missed actually um, and so yeah kind of really advocating a whole family approach that that is thinking about safety it's thinking about healing um, and it's also thinking about justice, you know, and I mean, that's a yeah. big word, you know, but but I think, as we know, the criminal justice system, you know, rarely delivers justice. Mm -hmm. um, but are there other ways that we can think about justice um, in these very complex family situations? And I'm I'm really keen to have those conversations. I think also from the work and what we heard through the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, when abuse took sexual abuse took place within institutions um I remember one survivor shared on many occasions that there was a culture of just allowing the sexual abuse to happen so it was almost like a rite of passage for the older boys in these institutions to sexually abuse the younger boys and it was just accepted and it was normalized yet that boy who spoke up as a man said it was just the most horrendous thing that he's ever, the impact of it is, is just turned his life upside down. And because of the word, well, it's just boys being boys and it's tomfoolery and it's it's just exploration, 
it's it actually devastated his life. And I and I think that we just need to know that there's these two extremes being played out, but we've got to really, as you said, over and over again, you've got to look at it from whoever's involved and give the appropriate support where it is needed. But where there is a pure act of crime, that also has to be dealt with in the right way as well. And it's holding those people to account that are running these kinds of institutions that have allowed this culture to manifest and carry on because it is it's not right. It's, it's not right at all. And as we are coming to the last five minutes and thinking about to wrap this up, I know I'm looking at you, Chris, making your faces. Um, Ellie, I'd like like you to think and I am putting you on the spot here you know I've got a couple of minutes to sort of bring this to an end and and um how do people after listening to this what would you advocate for them is their next step when approaching the schools when they ask them about you know ph um ce what's going on in the lessons etc what would you recommend to anybody listening to this podcast today? Well, I think you've kind of said it in your question, which which is having that conversation. I think that's brilliant. Um, you know, and, and it links into what you were saying as well, Chris, that um, there needs to be that two-way conversation between schools and parents. You know, it is completely fair enough if parents have questions and maybe have concerns and I would just really encourage that dialogue. Schools then should be providing parents with a good outline of how of how they are meeting this curriculum that we've spoken about. You know, what what materials are they using? Um, and also the question is, you know, how can parents support this? Because this is not work that schools can do alone. Um, so I would suggest that that schools are supporting parents as well in reinforcing this education back in, back at home. One of the issues we always highlight, though, Ellie, is the fact that if abuse is taking place at home, those parents will not want their children having this education because obviously they won't be able to carry on doing their abuse, um, sexually abusing their children. So it this is why it's so important for us to know that this education does exist within the educational setting. So it is out of the hands or in the power, not in the power of the parents who could potentially be abusing their children. And that's why I think that's so important. Um, yeah. And it's why this education, it, it needs to be statutory. Um, you know, every child has a right to it. Obviously, we're not talking about education that is inappropriately sexualizing children, but we're talking about this kind of clear education on these principles. Um, yeah, I, I come back to the the words of Gail Dines, who, who does a lot of work in America around pornography, who, who just summed it up for me when she said, you know, children have the right to author a sexuality that is rooted in intimacy, respect and connection. You know, I, I fundamentally believe in that right. And that is a huge motivator behind the work that I do. Yeah. And thank you. And I just want to say, and it's something we discussed before, but for anyone listening, um, I just want to share that, Ellie, you're not actually a survivor of sexual abuse. And we think that that's fantastic because there's many a person who's not a survivor. They're a supporter, ally, um, and they're always saying, what can I do? And I think what you really shine through is you're an advocate of that that you don't have to be a survivor to want to keep children safe you know it's about having that passion and if anybody here is listening who's not a survivor and they are looking for someone to inspire them I I think you're an amazing inspirational person and I thank you for all the work that you do well, so uh, that's fine and I, I you know I thank you both and I yeah, I really resonate with that, that, that this is, you know, the work to tackle abuse is a huge collective effort. It needs us all, doesn't it? And surely we all want to live in a world where children are free from abuse of all kinds. Um, and yeah, we all need to get involved in that effort, whoever we are, whatever experiences that we, we've had. 
um and yeah we're, we're kind of saying aren't we everyone's welcome to join this and absolutely yeah. absolutely chris any last thoughts for today well i've got so many questions that i want to ask so ellie if you really fancy coming back onto the podcast in the future please will you join us I would love to. It has been such a pleasure today. Lots that we've explored and lots that we can further explore. So, yes, I guess we're kind of saying to be continued. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Beverly, what about yourself? Well, uh, just to say that we will be putting any links that we've discussed and Ellie shared underneath. If anybody has any questions, can they email breaking the cycle to step forward at gmail.com? And that link will also be underneath. For me, oh, I love conversations like this because, you know, anybody listening in can take something away. And, you know, it will either be something that inspires them for their own recovery or something that gives them knowledge. And hopefully the next person that opens up to them, they'll be able to sit there and say, oh, actually, I'm listening to you and I hear you. So, yes, I thank you for today, both of you. And that's it. It's time to say goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. 